Welcome to Profiles. I am Patrick O'Mara, and today I'm delighted to welcome Yuri Deutsch, well-known photographer, and Katya Krasova, a producer of television programs and of exhibitions. Yuri, I want to hear a little bit more about you. You've had an interesting childhood growing up, of course, in eastern Slovakia and then moving to London. Tell us a little more about how this all happened and why. Well, at the beginning, it seems like a very happy childhood. I was born after the war. I didn't really know too much what's happened during the war, of course, at that time. I I was brought up in a small town in eastern Slovakia. When I was eight, we moved to Bratislava, which is now capital of Slovakia. And in 1968, uh, I was in England on student exchange when uh, Russian tanks rolled into the Prague, and I decided to stay in England and later on moved to Canada. How is it that someone who studies mechanical engineering and then moves to psychology ends up becoming a really world-famous photographer? Well, that's serendipity of life. I studied mechanical engineering because my parents figured out that would be the best thing for kid in Eastern Europe. It was apolitical and was safe. Then uh, last year I just couldn't take it anymore, so I went to psychology. I thought it was something more interesting for me. And then uh, Russian invasion interrupted that study. I came to Canada and by pure accidents, a series of accidents, I became a photographer. But both mechanics and psychology are infused into your work. I hope so. <laughs> and your influences in terms of photography, I've been looking at them from Man Ray, Irving Penn, and certainly also Egon Schiele, and Modigliani. And I think Modigliani in terms of your, your, your nude photographs, right? Well, as a child, the first art book I ever seen was Picasso. And um, later on, when I started learning more about photography, people like Man Ray were, of course, very influential. French photographer Guy Bourdin was enormous inf- influence on me when I was at, sc- at college in Canada. And um, the rest of them, Egon Schiele comes later, and you can see his psychology of paintings influenced enormously. Now, you've also done commercial photography, a lot of it. And your current show, which is a splendid show, which is in major museums, the show has appeared everywhere from Cambridge University in England to the Jewish Museum in New York, and I think the show has been in Brussels. Yes. Um, Is there a difference in terms of how you perceive of the commercial image versus this very special show, which we'll talk more about? As a matter of fact, I was talking to a gentleman on the way here, and I said, he asked me what makes my pictures different, and I tried to explain him that you have to have a passion, and if you... You can put the same passion into commercial photograph as you do into the personal. Uh, some people think there's a distinction between one and other, and they don't really compare. I was always lucky that even in commercial photography, I had enormous freedom, and client appreciated my own input. So you have to live for it. You have to be in a Zen moment when you take pictures. That's a good way of putting it. Katya, from Slovakia to the London School of Economics, to St. Anthony's at Oxford. How did this all lead to your becoming a producer? What is the odyssey? 
Like Yuri, I was brought up in Czechoslovakia, in, in Bratislava. And um, extraordinarily, I think our childhoods were very marked, very dominated by the Cold War and by the fact that the, we were living on the edge of this divided world. Um, we lived in a city which was separated from the free world by the Danube. And you could see the watchtowers and you could see the, the people on the other side. There was an extraordinary feeling that the trains that went through the railway station had come from the other side and all we could see was the train going very fast through. And in fact, I remember as a teenager going to the railway station to watch the Balt Orient Express. Um, it's, it's very hard to explain in the middle of uh, Indiana um, how close that was to us. So It was a window to the world, wasn't it? It was the a train. window to the world, and uh, at some point when television came, um, we were able to watch Austrian news. We were so close to it, and yet we could never, ever go there. So when the opportunity had arisen... Um, like Yuri, I also went to London, although we had not met at that point. Um, and um, London School of Economics was um, one of those universities that in 1968 offered a handful of us, there were five of us, the opportunity to study there. I have to say, when we're talking about an odyssey, I failed all my exams at the end of the first year. And because they were marked anonymously on my exam papers, it said, why doesn't the candidate speak better English? Oh. <laughs> I remember thinking, this person clearly hasn't got a clue. It's because the candidate can't do any better anyway. I tried very hard and I um, ended up with a scholarship to St. Anthony's College, Oxford. And after that, um, my life, like a life of many other postgraduate students, was marked by a situation where it was very hard to find a job. And I applied for 80 jobs and one of them was a um, competition to get into the BBC, which at that point decided to start training producers. And I suppose if you end up having the opportunity, you don't turn it down. So the rest was history. I was trained by the BBC to be a producer in every aspect of the production. Let's touch on a few of the people you worked with. You did um, a film on Sir George Schulte. Well, that was uh, already later on, um, yes. after um, I had created with my husband a company called Portobello Pictures. Right. Um, and uh, we were approached uh, by the Barbican Center, uh, who said to us that they had great difficulties being able to produce their fifth birthday concert because the BBC at the time didn't have the union ability to make a program worldwide. And so the two of us, complete novices, decided that we would take this on and that started an extraordinary nearly 15-year-long period where I became Sir George's um, television producer and his demands were such a pleasure because... A man who wants 105% sort of empowers you to give him the 105%. Right. And, you know, in looking at some of the other people over the years that you worked with, you've used the voice of Colin Firth. You've used the voice of Jeremy Irons and others. 
Tell us a little more about that. When you make a documentary, um, or certainly the sort of documentaries that I like to make, which are observational, um, you need as little commentary as possible. You want the pictures, the story to speak for itself. And I certainly hope that in the film that I'm making about Yuri's work in Slovakia, this will come through as well, that it's his voice rather than a kind of general voice. But you sometimes need somebody who has a voice that will attract you to listen to it. And Colin first, before he started his big career, I'm very proud to say that I used him for a documentary about the Royal Ballet when uh, nobody had heard of him yet, um, and his voice was incredibly attractive. But I do want to say, having this opportunity talking to you, Patrick, that the person who will be doing the voiceover on the documentary about Yuri is the um, extraordinary South African actress, Janet Sussman, who is very passionate about this project and who said to me at the very beginning, I am doing the commentary. (laughs) That's a great thing to have Janet do it. Tell me... What does it take? Yuri, maybe you could tell us. What does it take to be a producer? What is the importance of having Katya doing the production side of all of this? Well, the most important thing is that you can go to sleep <laughs> and you know things are happening. Yes. Uh, it's extremely relief for somebody like me who is not as disciplined to do things on time or whenever I feel I should do it. Katya keeps us all including the crew, mm-hmm. in order and on time. And we are all very grateful to her for that. But you also find the sponsors, Katya, don't you? Yes. I mean, I hope I do more than keep you on time. <laughs> I think the producer's role sometimes is ungrateful, actually, because you are standing there, not only having to keep people on time, but you have to create the environment in which somebody like Yuri can do the work. And I think that's the complexity of it, uh, which is sometimes not quite understood, that that you have to be both the manager, but you also have to be creative enough. You have to know when to give him more time. Um, And uh, I think um, the years of working at the BBC where you know that the clock is always running, that the budget clock is always running, but that also the subject of your film must take priority. And that balancing act, I think, is what makes it also exciting for me. You helped to produce a film called Kolya. Uh, indeed, that and was... It got uh, an Oscar of some sort, did it? It got the Oscar rather than some sort of an Oscar. <laughs> it got the Oscar for foreign in, in the uh, yes. foreign language uh, category. Um, and that was the result of uh, us working in Eastern Europe for a while post-Berlin uh, Wall. Um, I was lucky enough to be employed by the British Foreign Ministry to run some eight programs. And through them, I got involved with the Czech film industry. So that's how that came to be. Now, Yuri, you and Katya are deeply involved in a really very special project at the moment, Last Folio. Let me say that this is a very moving exhibition. And as I said earlier, one that has been on display everywhere from Oxford to New York, and it's now come to Bloomington. And it's also on display in other parts of the world, presumably at some point, it will go to Moscow. We hope so. We hope so. Now, bring us on the journey of this. It's a really very interesting story. Let's go back in time to 1997, to the funeral of your father. Well, 1997, January 
seven, I got a phone call from a friend of mine that my father passed away. That was only 13 days since I saw him last time. So I immediately went back and uh, all the funeral arrangements were done. And as we were leaving the funeral, I met a lady who sort of changed my whole life in the last 15 years. She, in a very short time, told me about uh, prophecy she heard in Auschwitz about her life and whatever will happen to her. And somehow it came to me that there must be a destiny. If somebody in Auschwitz told this lady her life, then maybe somebody knows ahead my life. This was Ruzhena. Ruzhena Vajinovska. So um, I asked her to accompany her on her journey, on her trips to visiting uh, Holocaust survivors who had no relatives, and later we visit everybody who she knew. And that's how the journey started. I've been doing it for a while, while I was visiting my mother, who stayed in Slovakia. And eventually I amassed about 100 portraits, uh, which I really didn't have a clue what I'm going to do with them. I was just doing it without any thinking process. Why? Till uh, I was approached by... Um, people from Slovak Foreign Ministry to do exhibition in New York, in Washington at Slovak Embassy. So again, serendipity was such that we flew to Washington on September 11, 2001. We arrived, of course, all the mayhem started, and when I asked Ambassador, what are we going to do? He said, the show will go on. And since then, the exhibition was shown one more time in Washington, then it was traveling, and then in 2005, I was showing those photographs at the uh, meeting of Slovaks expats in Bratislava, where I met Katya. Katya, I'm going to read something about the journey. I am meeting Yuri at the airport. He has flown in from Toronto, I from London. We are to start filming the survivors the very next morning. We have ten days, many people to see, and much ground to cover. We have no inkling of what awaits us. Tell us what awaited you. I saw these photographs. Uh, I'm going to go a few months back um, from that moment. Um, I saw the photographs and I was very struck by them. Um, like everybody else of my generation, I had lost large part of my family during the Second World War. And uh, like Yuri, not much of this was being spoken about as we were growing up. We were just the generation without grandparents. That's what marked us um, from the others, really. Um, and uh, when I saw Yuri's photographs, really quite by chance, there was something about them that sort of cut straight through. And I was suddenly in a world of thinking that all these people, although I didn't know any of them, would have been my family. It was a very powerful feeling. And so I walked across the room and I suggested to Yuri whom I had not known, and I introduced myself, that we might make a film. And it took six months to the point where I said, OK, I've raised enough money for us to go on a trip. 
And on that day, that very first day, when I had no idea indeed what was going to happen, the crew and Yuri and I had never met before. It was a, it was just one of those things that as a producer you dread because you want some kind of bonding to happen before some planning, but there was no money and no time to do it because we were coming from different parts of the world. And... Um, I said to Yuri, okay, I don't really mind where we start. I don't know these people. You you tell me where we start. And he said, why don't we go and start where I started with Mrs. Vynorska, the lady who um, got me on this path. And we went to her house and uh, there was this diminutive lady sitting on a little chair in her kitchen, on a child's chair in her kitchen, putting on eyeshadow without a mirror. And I said, Mrs. Vynorska, would you like a mirror? And she got hold of my hand and she said, darling, I've been putting on eyeshadow for 60 years. <laughs> if I don't know by now. Where she was in her late 80s at this point. And she said, my Yuri had come. Anyway, she started telling her story and... From her, we went to the next person to tell their story. And by the end of the day, I realized that we had arrived in a moment where these people were about to go. Their memory was going. They, Many of them just had fragments left. And these people needed to tell their story. That's why we didn't know what was going to await us, because we met people who knew Yuri's grandparents. We met, extraordinarily, a woman who had met my father on the death march and who had no idea who I was and who described this man who inspired her to survive the last few days uh, of the march. So. And, and Yuri, you, treat, you treated these, as you've said, each as individual survivors, each fragment captured in a portrait, preserved in its eloquence, in its final eloquence. Yeah. Everyone was different. Everybody was individual. Even the story was similar. Everywhere you go, you have to start from scratch. And it was emotional things. You have to really blank yourself, be beginner in every house, and just see this individual as a brand new person without thinking what what I've done before. I try to use as much natural light as possible. I love to shoot in their own environment as much as I could with some exception, which were actually very powerful, where I took people to cemetery. Uh, some, sometimes they asked me to go, or they were showing me the cemeteries. That was people. The books, that's another story. That we came to find by, again, serendipity. And yes, each book, each scene was taken as a, something brand new. Let's talk about this. There's one really moving segment that describes this discovery. It's of a classroom, which is unchanged, untouched. The clock has stopped. The sugar is in the bowls. The books are on the desks. Tell us about this. Well, another one of this journey was uh, full of miracles. And this was one of the miracles where we are in small town in eastern Slovakia photographing a couple when somebody impatiently... Uh, knock on the door. It was a guy who was living in the same house. He knew the people, and he instinctively felt, what are we doing? So he said, I would love to show you something. Being on a 
budget and being on a tight schedule, Katya took over and she said, look, we don't really have a time to go anywhere, but I will give you some time tomorrow morning for 10 minutes. So 10 minutes, next morning he was there at the, our hotel. He took us to a place which for us opened another universe. I, I, I want to interrupt there because the man said, you know, just a few minutes, just please give me the few minutes. Because we were going on the day to photograph an 87-year-old 300 kilometers away from there, and there was a lot of snow on the roads. I really just was very aware of the fact that the demands of the schedule and the demands of the timing, and and you can't come to an 87-year-old four hours late or two hours late. So I said, okay, 20 minutes. And the 20 minutes turned out to be eight hours, and the clock stopped not just on the wall, the clock stopped for us, uh, Yuri and the cameraman, just, we were all, it was mesmerizing. We could not move. We just wanted to stay there. And when Yuri returned back to Canada, he called me and he said, I am looking at these photographs and I don't entirely understand what it is that I saw. I have to go back. And so we've been back six times. And the body of work... Um, is so iconic now because it tells you about the culture of the people, about the world that is no longer, about the people who read those books. Um, and I think Yuri has indeed done the portraits of the books like he did the portraits of the, the people. The world stopped turning in 1942, but you've captured the moment that it stopped turning and you're able to share it with all of us. At this point, Katya and Yuri, I think we want to do a musical selection. Katya, what would you like at this point? Well, I thought you'd said Smetana. Yes, indeed. I think, that, well, that was also Yuri's choice, right. the Moldau. delighted that today we have with us the well-known photographer Yuri Deutsch and the producer Katja Krasova. We are discussing The Last Folio. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Katya and Yuri, let's talk about the exhibition now, the installation itself. I'm really impressed with the creation of an exhibition. 
What was the vision you had of this? What did you want the viewer who comes into the gallery to discover and see? I think I pass this to Katya because she was uh, instrumental of creating this kind of exhibition as we see today. As we were talking about before, the, the time stopped for us when we walked into the building of the school. I very much wanted Yuri's photographs to come alive. We are all used to seeing pictures on the wall and photographs on the wall. Uh, we very rarely get the opportunity to enter the world to get a sense of what it was like. If I could have created the smell of that place or if we could have walked into the space even more, I would have wanted it. And I, I was very, very lucky that in London I met uh, about four years ago Daniel Weil, one of today's great designers at a company called Pentagram, um, which indeed has an office in New York as well. And Daniel looked at these photographs and it took him approximately five seconds. He took a piece of paper and he drew for me what was in my head. He understood completely. And he at first said, I don't want it to be theatrical. I want it to be that world. So he created for Cambridge, first of all, uh, for the university library, because we were allowed for the first time to go into a library of manuscripts. And what we wanted to do was to get the visitor the sense that those books on the shelves, those beautiful volumes, those valuable volumes, are safe. They've been looked after for centuries. These have suffered what the world has come to know as 20th century in Europe. Um, and the contrast had to be there. And so Daniel understood that, and he came on the journey in a way with us. And what you will be seeing in Bloomington now is what we created for New York, which was really you walk in and you walk in through some of the portraits, a narrow passageway of portraits of just a few of those 150 amazing portraits that Yuri took. Um, and you walk into a space that these people had inhabited. It's the fragments of the buildings. It's the overgrown cemeteries. It's the abandoned mikvahs. It's the spaces that they occupied that were once vibrant, which are now just ghostly places. So the exhibition is the end product of interaction with people, with ideas, with discussions, with listening, and with images. Yeah. It's a journey of, uh, you, well, you describe it very well. Uh, portraits, cemeteries, synagogues, Mikvas, all the what left, and that was our first title, Hanishar in Hebrew, what remains mm -hmm. in English. And the central structure, which is very special, um, is in a way a, it's the centerpiece where you can see the images of the abandoned books, the portraits of the abandoned books, but which is also in a way, a Torah scroll that rolls up, mm -hmm. that rises in the middle. Um, and that central column is the center of the idea. 
I would like to add that this every detail on this exhibition was sought out. So when you see a bulb, uh, a light bulb, light bulbs, they represent a bulb, a bulb lamp which we saw in the building. In the building itself. And as you're walking in, you actually the first picture you see on the top of the of the Torah scroll yes. is the lamp. Interesting. So there's a little details which are very well sought out. You get the feeling you are surrounded by what left. In a recent review uh, of the New York show, I want to quote from it. Can the Holocaust be memorialized by an aesthetically beautiful object? What's the answer to that? I think this is the question which many artists uh, wrestle with. Uh, I know it's extremely difficult. I read about this a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, how World War Two is best represented by uh, Picasso's Guernica, mm-hmm. how Vietnam War is represented by a photograph by Eddie Adams. And we felt, we are second generation, we have to have different interpretation that the generation who actually was part of the Holocaust, like the famous writers who wrote about it and who, be, who were there, so this is our contribution to representation, and I'm sure there will be next generation after us who will have their own interpretation. So we are removed from it. Uh, we were not there, but we had enough experience from our parents. We are just passing what we learned from our parents, hopefully to our children and to all the children around the world. But there's something more to this exhibition. It's aesthetic, but it's also preservation because future generations can look at objects that still exist. But I think one of the points here is that these are disintegrating. Is that correct? Yes, my my feeling about it is also very well expressed by somebody, a completely unknown person who wrote to us after seeing the exhibition in in New York. And she wrote to us and she said... On the way out, I bought three copies of your catalogue, the reason being that I have three children and their forefathers come from there and I wanted my children to be able to look at at least photographs of books that once used to belong uh, to possibly their great-grandparents. So there is that sense of, as you say, preservation of the cultural memory um, and I'm going to allow myself to tell the story of one book because that's very important. Um, When we were photographing in a different place, because after we had our first exhibition at the National Museum of Slovakia, we were approached by somebody who said there is one other place where there are books. And I really didn't believe him because we had been on the journey crisscrossing the country asking people, looking at the most obscure places. But anyway, he was right, and he had keys to a place. And in this place, there were over 5,000 books, and they were just rotting. Everything was in such a sad state. And Yuri was photographing in one room, and I was in another room, pulling books off the shelves. And I noticed that many of them had stamps. These were books that were not as old as the ones in the school, but they were nevertheless books that belonged to real people with real names. 
And one of the books I pulled off the shelf had in it a name of Jakub Deutsch. And I knew that Yuri's father changed the spelling of their name to protect the family after the war. I realized that we had been on this journey for four years and I had never asked Yuri for the names of his family and that he never asked me for the names of my family and that we had kind of gone trying to protect ourselves. We were going right into it and yet we were still not making it personal it in some way. It became personal. And that book, by complete coincidence, by the most extraordinary serendipity, belonged to Yuri's grandfather. Isn't that something? This is a wonderful moment to pick another piece of music. I'm wondering if we might think of something appropriate. Well, I certainly think that this is the moment to play Kol Nidre by Bruch, and if possible, I would like to choose the Pablo Casals recording of it. here today with Yuri Deutsch and Katja Krasova discussing a contemporary exhibition, Last Folio. This is a very moving exhibition, and in many ways, I want to ask a deep question, perhaps. I have read from a statement made about this exhibition dealing with the tragedy of lost lives. I wonder if we could say a little more about it. Let me read the quotation. The dead speak to us, and through us, they come back as fact, or they come back as fiction. The trick, I think, is to face them, to channel their force, to write through and with one's grief. And that is from the Omid Borumand Foundation. I'd like to hear a little more about this notion of the dead speaking to us and the way that we channel the dead. I read something similar which says that as long as we talk about dead, they are still alive. Somebody wrote it to me as well who saw the exhibition. And I felt that uh, especially pictures of books do represent people. We don't know how they look, but they're abstract people who could be, some of them were, my family or anybody's family. And through those photographs of the books, I'm preserving their memory and maybe them. So uh, that way they are still alive. Um, And for me, um, 
this may seem paradoxical, but ever since we started working on this project, and a lot of my friends in London said, why do you want to continue working on a project about dead people? And it's so depressing. And why are you doing this? You like making programs that are kind of life-enhancing. And I thought a lot about it, and I thought a lot about it so many times when we found in forests um, abandoned, completely overgrown cemeteries. You had a similar encounter with the past, with the word colnidre. Would you like to tell us about that? Well, as I mentioned, neither of us are able to read Hebrew, and uh, we were very lucky that a number of other people who can, who looked at the photographs, which I guess must have somehow uh, made it through the selection because Yuri, as any photographer, will take a number of images and then he will choose one to make it public. Um, so one of the photographs he took was a book that has a worn-out, completely worn-out place. And through it, you see some Hebrew letters. And when we had our exhibition in Cambridge, somebody came over to me, a, a Hebrew scholar from Jerusalem, and he said, explain to me why you have these two pictures next to each other. And, of course, the answer for us was aesthetic reasons. And he said... No, no, one of them has got Kol Nidre, the prayer, and the other one has a piece of Exodus in it. And so we were endlessly finding more and more layers of importance. And I suppose that's the answer to how you connect to the people before you. And actually, you're suggesting that the Kol Nidre was thumb-marked at the point when someone was reading it, probably at Yom Kippur. That's right. Many generations that had passed the book on to each other. Yuri, the past and the present come together in this exhibition because, in a sense, you are preserving the past but, and celebrating the survivors, but you're also showing something more, right? The resilience of people. Resilience... Um that those who we photograph actually survived. Yes. The rest of the exhibition, of course, are the memories of the past. Yeah. So, yes, you can look at it from that point of view. And what is interesting that children of many of the pictures which I photograph are alive, and they are that second generation. So there's a connection to the next group of people. How do the second generation respond to what you've done? Hmm. Of course, they are touched, but they are sort of unsure because we are showing them something which many of them, including us, didn't even know uh, that exists. We didn't know there was so much left from our first generation. So uh, they are as much as surprised as we are. But what I'm hoping is that uh, their children, and many of their children are already interested in this subject so that it's continue. Tell me, the, the notion of sacred books in Judaism, sacred books should be buried, right? And in a way, you've not really needed to bury these books because you, in one statement, have said you've transformed them into the tree of life. So these are still living books. 
What was fascinating about our journey is that we learned so much about something we should have known anyway. Yes. But uh, circumstances didn't allow us to have education uh, which our parents had. So motion of buried book, we learned on this trip where we came to cemetery, one of the cemeteries, where caretaker was telling us that he had some books in a plastic box ready to be buried. Mm-hmm. For him, it was something to get buried. For us, it was a treasure bag. So before they get buried, we try to preserve them photographically because I feel that's the only way you can preserve those books today. So they are living books, though? They are living books, but the originals are buried. Oh, the, the originals have been buried? So the, the one which we found on cemeteries in the plastic bags, by now, I assume, they will be already oh, buried. They've, they've been buried. That's very interesting. Yuri, as an art form, what is your statement? Someone had said that it's a new category of portraiture. Do you think that's true? Is this a new kind of portraiture, both of people and of books? Well, that's, that's how they call it. But when I work, I don't think in terms of philosophy or aesthetics. You go by the place. The place gives you, at least for me, place put me to a certain stage. There are moments when I had to throw everybody out of the room. There are moments when I was trying to be totally alone. There are moment, moments when I'm just mumbling to myself, total nonsense. But you are really lost in the moment. And that's what some people call creative moment. But it's also been called an alchemy. Someone talked about the alchemy of a photograph. What do you think that means? No, I think that's when you get crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Or when you get inspired. Um, I wanted to say something sort of observing Yuri at work, which has been a very interesting process for me as a documentary filmmaker, not as a producer, but as a documentary filmmaker, because I have worked with famous artists and I've also worked with all sorts of people um, in my career as a documentary filmmaker. And observing men at work, so to speak, is always absolutely fascinating, seeing the process of creation. And I've done it with all sorts of artists. Um, And what is really what was very interesting for me was to see that because I didn't know how Yuri worked and I wasn't sure whether it was going to be staged and how he would work with the people. And I noticed after a while that he takes a picture when he first meets somebody before their defenses are up, before they know they're going to be photographed, he takes a picture. And he then might take a picture a little while later. But very often, it's the first photograph where he just perceived them that he keeps um, and he shows. And I think it that's the creativity that you just kind of see something that the rest of us perhaps don't see. And with the books, I think... You know, we uh, we so often have met people who said, well, I also photographed that, but somehow I didn't see what Yuri saw. Um, and I think that, that that's where the creative process comes into it, that we each perceive things in a different way and his interaction is very much... I must say it can be a little dis- disconcerting to have Yuri suddenly take one's picture <laughs> out of the blues at an angle that is totally unexpected. 
But I will also say that I've been impressed with the fact that everyday objects, you have an angle on photographing them. In a bar, I watched you photograph the pump for a beer keg, and you went into the essence of the pump, not into the entirety of it, which is a very interesting insight. We went uh, on the weekend to Columbus, where we were very moved by the Veteran Memorial, very moved. It's one of the finest I have ever seen. And Yuri took a picture of it, which we've shown to somebody from the faculty here, and he said, where did you take that picture from? And he Mm. said... Columbus, Indiana. Right there. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, Katya, um, an aside, you've also had experience in South Africa, and that's been a divided society and a difficult society where the past and present collide, where memory becomes very important. Have you ever thought of that connection? Oh, a great deal, because when I first went to South Africa, um, I had gone there to visit the my in-laws because my ex-husband came from Cape Town and was a very articulate and one of the youngest people ever banned in South Africa. Um, and so I went there briefed by people. I couldn't at that point go back to Czechoslovakia and he couldn't go back to South Africa. It was a kind of extraordinary pairing of of political and cultural memories and, and situations. And um, I felt in South Africa as if I were in Eastern Europe. There were so many similarities. The world was divided, perhaps not into black and white in Eastern Europe, but there was that black and white divide as well. Yes, I think there is a huge similarity. Um, And uh, I went to visit people who put blankets on their windows so that nobody could see from the outside who was there. That is so East European. But uh, I very much hope that just like Eastern Europe is now a freer place, that South Africa will grow to be a... Well, that's really my last question. My question is this. Slovakia. Civil society is strong. There's really a different civic initiativeness. Can you really say now that this troubled memory of the past that we've been talking about is real and that the country is coming to terms with its past? And the past could be Russia but also the Holocaust? Well, some say that as long as the old generation is alive, it will be very difficult. Uh, It's not going to be clear till that whole generation will be gone. It's a very troubling situation there. I don't have exact answer. Mm. When I go there, I'm not really part of it. I'm not, I'm just observer. It's not anymore my home. And we were talking about home with Katya quite lo- often. What is our home? And I frankly don't feel anymore that I have a need for home. Oh, I don't feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that it is, well, first of all, to answer your question, um, are they coming to terms with their past? Very slowly. You only need to look at what had happened in Germany, where over 60 years since the end of the war. Um, Slowly, slowly, that country is 
getting there, but not there yet. It's very difficult. It's not, Yuri's right, as long as the people who were participants are still alive, it's very difficult. But we do know that the biblical saying about the fact that next generations will be visited by the sins of the the parents, it's not quite necessarily the sins, but the memories, the memories are there. Um, and I think that it is something where, yes, Slovakia is our original home. It's where we grew up. It's where our parents grew up. It's where our grandparents grew up. So, yes, it is very much our home. But like Yuri has a home in Canada and I have a home in, in London, we will retain those memories. We are very marked by it. I think that mm -hmm. our everyday is informed by it. Um, you were mentioning civic society. That is very difficult to build, and I think that takes a very long time. That's not just a question of, I mean, South Africa, yes. another case in point. Um, and actually, Katya, the exhibition, The Last Folio, is emblematic of people dealing with their pasts. And because of that, it has relevance not only to Slovakia, but certainly to Germany, to South Africa, to Serbia. To, to Iran. To Iran. To Rwanda. To Rwanda. So this is this notion of memory and dealing with the horrendous elements of the past is very much a part of Last Folio. But I think also uh, the fact that keeping that memory in you is a very important way of going forwards. Right. Wonderful. This has been Profiles, and our guests today have been Yuri Deutsch and Katja Krasova. And I'm Patrick O'Mara, and thank you for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in August of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.